Okay, it is January 10th, 2021. Welcome to our Shike Fellowship Sunday service. I hope you have been well. A lot has happened this week to pray for. I want to begin by drawing your attention to our text today. Uh, we're continuing our sermon study on the book of Judges. Last week we began with Judges 1, verses 1 to 10. I'd like for you to turn to the book of Judges once again, to chapter 1, verse 11 to 26. Verses 11 to 26 of the first chapter, book of Judges. You have your Bible open? I'll read from the text, and you can follow along in your own Bible. And this is what the Word of God reads. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Deborah, now the name of Deborah formerly was, Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Then it came about, when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is, the, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel, now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing our study on the book of Judges. So there's obviously a lot of content here, a lot for us to kind of engage with and tackle and wrestle with so we're going to pray for that today we're praying for our unreached people group of the day they come from china the hunan province and they're called the yumian the yumian of hunan province of china um if you've never if you're not familiar with the map of china or any of that it's okay you can google it up and uh, look but it's the hunan province is in the southern part of china and uh they border i guess vietnam that kind of that area and so we're praying for these people the lu the yumian uh, there are no Christians there, 0% Christian, 0% evangelical. Uh, they have a lot of uh, their own ethnical religions in this people group, and there are about 225,000 of them. So uh, we're praying for the Yumian of China. Brothers and sisters, past week we had uh, a lot of stuff happen, uh, mainly uh, at the capital of the United States in Washington. We had, of course, you've, if you've been completely oblivious to this, um, I mean, you're, I don't know what you're doing with your life or how you're avoiding all this stuff, uh, but a lot of stuff has happened. So with the invasion of 
capital pro-trump rallies uh, by all these like right-wing radicals and crazy groups and um and then of course uh what uh, what occurred is donald trump's you know pending now they're trying to impeach him again and you know they canceled him out of on every single social media platform um yeah it's kind of crazy you know i wish i had like an hour to just kind of discuss some of the ramifications of these things uh from a spiritual perspective i know it, it seems very disconnect but uh, there's a lot of things that uh there are that will be consequential to the church as a result of the ideology that continues to secularize our culture today and it's not to take sides on the political spectrum it's really to take sides uh, on the spiritual spectrum and um, i think it's really important for christians to keep their worldview clear cut and very very focused on the cross and the gospel in our perspective of everything um, it's not for you to take left side rest, right side on on some you know worldly political spectrum but it's really to look at the world uh, through the lens of scripture and what it teaches us about the world uh, the things we're struggling with and the things we're seeing uh, in the world today is no different from the things we've seen ideologically in the bible uh, from multiple people groups and ultimately they're the the end result of these of these sins of the sinfulness that continues to allow to multiply is destruction and so uh, let's be careful let's be careful as christians uh, to not mingle ourselves uh, with the wrong crowd and let's be careful uh, not to attach uh, our political perspectives to our to our um, religious convictions it's completely different things um, they're related they're interconnected and overlap on certain areas right the issues of morality value and virtue and all these things uh, but we must be able uh, to decipher these things very carefully and cautiously so that is my prayer the church of the united states of america to stand on the firm ground of the gospel and to be a voice of reason at this time and maybe that voice of reason comes in the form of exactly what we're going to study today a prayer and uh, perhaps that's what we need to do the most is to bend our knees in prayer at this hour um so I would like to pray at this time for our brothers and sisters down south, as we've done so often in 2020, and it seems like we're going to have to continue doing this in 2021, but we'd like to pray for the Church of America because it is highly influential, uh, and it is certainly, um, at this point in history, uh, the central sort of, I guess, stage of, the, of Christendom. Uh, and so we'd like to pray for them. We'd like to pray for Christians down south. Let's pray together and uh, look at the book of Judges. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for what it will teach us and empower us with. Uh, and we desire for that to be truth, and we desire for it to be conviction uh, that moves us in ways uh, to make us more like you, more like Christ. God, we also pray for the Yumian of the Hunan province of China, and we pray, Lord Father, for their faith and salvation. We pray that the gospel would reach them, Lord Father, we would see the day where these 225,000 people are reached. So, Father God, please be with the Church of China as it grows. Be with faithful Christians and believers who are convicted to preach in these places, um, that they would go and be frontier missionaries in the province of Hunan, the Yumian people. God, we pray for the Church of the United States of America. God, they can't even imagine at this time being a, being a leader or a pastor, or even just a believer right now in the United States. God, I know that there's just a lot of um, 
a lot of unfortunate circumstance uh, that is clouding the perspective of the church from outsiders and then clouding people within the church. And Father, we just ask um, for clarity. We ask for uh, the church to have a worldview that is totally centralized on the gospel of Jesus Christ and that our emotions and our political stances would not cloud our judgment in praying for and seeing the world um, through the lens of your scripture, your word, its lessons, its teachings, spirit working in them. And we just pray for wisdom and guidance in their hearts, the voice of reason, and for a firm stance of faith. And um, God, that this, this whole thing, um, in whatever way you've ordained, that it would come to peaceful resolution. But God, I know we're under a lot of fire and a lot of attack right now, um, as the church, so to speak. And so I just pray for wisdom on the lips of believers at this time. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, today's sermon is entitled Parable of Prayer. Back in June 11th, 19, oh, sorry, 19, 1893, 1893, that's a lot of, lot of years ago. In Newington, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled Aksa's Prayer, a pattern of prayer based on this very text, Judges 1, verses 12 to 15. In this sermon, Spurgeon taught that Aksa's petition to this father of hers found in this text that we just read could be seen as a primary and worthy example or template for our own prayers to God. Now, when you initially read the text, it's hard to see that, right? Um, and maybe that's not exactly the first thing that came to your mind when you saw this, but that's what Spurgeon saw. It is in this sermon that Spurgeon referred to this petition as a parable of prayer. And that's exactly where I derived the title for our sermon today. Now, there are many good examples of prayers or petitions in Scripture. Abraham's petition to God in Genesis 18, Moses' petition to God in Exodus 32, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, her famous prayer for a son, right, or for a child, Daniel's prayers, David's prayers in the Psalms, for example, Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, and the numerous records of Jesus' prayer all throughout the Gospels. Prayer is certainly a recommended and if not commanded spiritual discipline for all believers, and it requires and deserves our commitment and time and effort. We begin every service with prayer, and we close every service with the Lord's Prayer, which we just learned about at CrossCon, right? Prayer is so prolific that it is a practice found in every major religion of the world today, right? And yet, and yet, as a believer, myself, I find myself unmotivated, distance, and too far from this practice. I think a lot of this has to do with a disconnect in my own heart, in my mind, of knowing to whom I am praying. Audience of my prayer. Here's my theory. What do you think? When we understand the audience of our prayer, when we truly understand, and that gravity hits us of who we're praying to and who is listening to our prayer, I think we're drawn to prayer. And a lot of times, I think, I think this, prayer is so accessible. Prayer is so free, free 
in the sense that you can just do any time right and it's so like it's just something that doesn't require too much structure right it's just so accessible that in a sense i feel like that diminishes our own sinful heart from wanting it Too many times our prayers are not really prayers, are they? They sound more like just common comments or complaints and other things that we can't really differentiate from something a non-believer would say to God, right? What is Christian prayer anyway? These are things we need to understand and study, look to, here is one thing I'd like to recommend and I'd like to I'd like for you to think about today as we continue to look at this why did Jesus pray and continuously habitually why is it so prolific in his ministry I think it's something that is not only recommended to us but clearly exemplified to us as a practice we are to commit to right we are to commit to now we look to today's passage and find three sections of lessons I'm going to break down the first one, which is the Aksa's prayer, and then I'm going to go in the conclusion to the other two. We will look at Aksa's request and learn the benefits of her example. We will look at the following events in verses 16 to 26 in the conclusion afterward and see what a heart and attitude like Aksa in her petitions can do for the believer, even for the mightiest of warriors. Our battle is not won by our might, but by the might of our God and our faith and trust in Him. That will sort of be the thesis that... Uh, structures our sermon today, right? Or grounds the sermon today. So let's look at Aksa's prayer. Now, in all honesty, I'm going to be stealing from Spurgeon. Uh, after reading and listening to his, in, I, I guess not listening, but reading and trying to or orally listen to myself reading it, I was trying to hear what he was preaching on that day, on June 11th, 1893. Took some notes, and I stole some of the things that he, he, um, he had said. And I want to draw your attention to some of the points that he made, and I want to break it down for you in sort of, my interpretation of these things as the Spirit has led. Now, in Spurgeon's sermon on Ox's request uh, to her father, he lists a number, numerous reasons why her request to her father was a good example of prayer. I'd like to cover some of those, not all of them, but some of those reasons that Spurgeon listed and give you reason to view Ox's request as, as an example for your own prayer life as well. So here's point number one. She thought about what she wanted before she went to the Father. One of the things that Spurgeon notes. She first wanted, what? A field in order to be able to cultivate the land for food and the sustenance for her family and the tribe that would reside there. But she also needed a water supply in order for this to even be possible, right? So she thought about these things. She carefully thought out what was needed and brought that request to her father. Why to her father? Knowing that what? He was the one who could supply it. Right? So this was a thoughtful process in Spurgeon's perspective. I think I would agree with that. Here's what Spurgeon writes in his sermon. Think what you are going to ask for before you begin to pray. And then pray like a businessman. This woman does not say to her father, Father, listen to me. And then utter some petty, pretty little oration about nothing. But she knows what she is going to ask for and why she is going to ask for it. That's point number one. Point two. She asked for help with her request. She did not do it alone. 
So if you look at the text, she actually goes to her uh, new husband and asks, hey, can you ask the father, my father, your father-in-law, essentially, uh, for a field? Right? Can you help me in this, right? Many of our prayers and petitions are brought before God in privacy, solitude, and in loneliness, right? In other words, we pray these things alone, and we pray for these things alone. And maybe some of those things are, you know, are to be prayed for alone. But in this case, and in maybe some other cases in our own prayers, perhaps some of our prayers are best brought before God corporately, along with the community of believers that God has gifted us with. Maybe some of these things are we were to pray for. I'm reminded of Jesus who asked his disciples, pray for me. Right? Don't sleep. I'm going here. I'm going to do this thing. You have no idea what this night is about. You will know one day. Don't fall asleep. Stay here. Pray for me. Right? I remember hearing a long time ago, I can't remember the exact context or where I was. I remember it was some kind of maybe a revival meeting or gathering. I remember the pastor sharing about how uh, the guest preacher shared about how he had gone to some church and the pastor, before he went up to preach, um, or so as he was preaching, um, and he's on the pulpit and he's preaching, uh, there would be, I don't know if this is biblical or scriptural at all, but I just remember hearing this and it just stuck in my mind. I remember him telling me how uh, in a separate sort of corridor, uh, un, like behind the pulpit. So if you know like old school churches and how they're constructed, there's this whole elaborate like corridor system behind the scenes, like behind the pulpit. So to speak. And it kind of rise to the pulpit from that, from those steps but behind there was like a prayer room and in this prayer room this group of elders would be praying for this pastor as they preach right? of course they're listening and not like oblivious to what's going on they're not ignoring the sermon but they're essentially in a prayerful attitude and heart for the pastor as he preaches right and i remember hearing that that's that image stuck to me right and i remind and sometimes i feel like we like to keep our prayers to ourselves and we like to keep them private because many times our prayers and the contents of our prayers are shameful. Many times the contents of our prayers are things we don't want people to know. And maybe there are certain things that are best left like that, but maybe some of the prayers that we are just holding on to ourselves are prayers that we need to bring to God corporately. Right? Maybe prayers, some prayers are best prayed for together, right? In the community that God has provided. And I think this is one of the reasons why we have that awkward time. Anytime we meet Christians, there's always, there's always two awkward questions that comes out in every Christian gathering, right? So, you know, what's God, what has God been teaching you these days, right? That's number one. And how can we pray for you? What's your prayer topic, right? Those are the two things that always come down every Christian meeting, right? Um, it's the worst icebreaker. But that's what happens, right? And I think it's part of our DNA as believers. Even though it's awkward, it's something we are up to do. One of the burdens we carry together, right? Galatians 6. Here's what Spurgeon writes. A friend some time ago said to me, My dear pastor, and this is one of his congregants, Whenever I cannot pray for myself, and there are times when I feel shut up about myself, I always take time to pray for you. What? (laughs) 
And this is what Spurgeon responded. God bless him at any rate. And I have not been long praying for you. Before I begin, this is what, this is what the congregant said. I have been long, long been praying for you before I begin to feel able to pray for myself. This person is basically saying, anytime I can like really pray for myself, I pray for you. And then I can pray for myself. Spurgeon writes, I should like to come in for many of those odd bits of prayer. Whenever any of you get stuck in the mud, pray for me. It will do you good, and I shall get a blessing. Here's what he's trying to get at. I took it out of its context, but the point is this. This congregant was convinced that she or he or she needed to pray for her pastor to be able to be a shepherd to her. She prayed that her shepherd, her leader, would be able to pray for me, even though I'm not communicating these things and all these things. Her prayer was for him so that his role would be sufficient in providing for her for that person to be able to then be able to pray for themselves. Does that make sense? It doesn't, right? It's kind of like, it's like not the way we're programmed to think, right, as Christians. But the heart of this person was, I think, attuned to what Aksa was doing here, which is understanding to bring this request, this ultimate conclusion that I have in mind, to have this unfold and understand whether or not this is the will of God and have it unfold as the will of God, all these things, Bringing it genuinely to this person, saying, I cannot do it without this person who is of great assistance to me. And in the same way, this congregant saw this very, saw her pastor in that role and thought to themselves, hey, in order for this prayer to be unlocked in my heart so that it can be unleashed to God and requested to Him, I need this person with me in that. It's a very interesting thought. It's, in fact, a thought that until I read this sermon, I never thought of. I don't think I've ever been taught this. We've been taught to, we've been taught to pray together. We haven't been taught why. Right? Some prayers, perhaps some requests to God, are meant to be brought together with the community of God. Point number three, she knew it was her father. Aksa understood the nature of the person who would listen and receive her request. Listen to and receive her request. And equally important, she understood the nature of her relationship with this person. This wasn't just Caleb, right? The leader of his tribe and successful military commander. But this was her father. I've given this example a few times, but I'd like to reiterate to you, for those who've never listened to it or heard it, perhaps this will be of service to your heart. Imagine this scenario. Who is the most power? Let's say there's, because the White House and the, the, the President of the United States is not exactly a great example right now. Uh, let's just say, right, let's just say, well, let's just use Canada as an example. We're all Canadians here. Let's just say, for example, right, we threw you into, right, um, went to Ottawa and we threw you into the office of the prime minister. We threw you into the office and we're like, okay, you have a next hour to spend with this person. In this case, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You like him or not, just put that aside for a moment. Just look at the position. We throw you in there and we say, you have an hour to spend with this person, okay? Or think of any role model, like Elon Musk. He's just the world's richest man now, right? You throw him in the office of Tesla and you're just with him for the next hour. And you just, you have all the time in the world with him, okay? What would you do? How would you behave? 
how would you conduct yourself? Understanding the position of this person, understanding the importance of this person, understanding the time value of this person, understanding that this is an opportunity, all of these things. How would you conduct yourself? I assure, I assure you that you wouldn't conduct yourself as if you were meeting just any, just anybody, like a friend or someone you commonly meet. You would conduct yourself in a behavior, in a manner, and you would speak a certain way. You would want to present yourself in a certain manner, and you would have a sense of excitement, yet nervousness, right? There would be some, a little bit of anxiety there because this person is more important than me. And I, I, they are, it's not me giving my time for them. They are giving their time for me, right? That's how you would approach it. But then what if I said, same situation, but it's your father. Same position, same role, same power and influence, same office, same time, same everything. Your relationship with this person is, they are your father. How then would your conduct, your expectation, your emotions, everything change? I think you can put two and two together. It's pretty easy to understand what I'm trying to get at. Yes, we are praying to the heavenly God of the universe, the creator of all things, the mighty Lord, the Adonai, the heavenly Father that watches over all things and has ordained all things. Yes, the most powerful being in the universe. And yet, as Hebrews teaches us, you can confidently come before his throne because he knows you and you know him. He is your Father. It changes everything it changes everything knowing the audience and knowing your relationship to that being changes your prayer life and it changes the content of your prayer it should fourth point she went humbly yet eagerly, humbly yet eagerly, knowing her intentions were in the right place, knowing the intentions of her father, knowing the benefits of her petition, Aksa brings her request to her father in humility, knowing that only he could grant her request, and in eagerness, knowing that he would want to grant her request, but leaving that decision ultimately up to him. So there's an eagerness in our heart. And I think we should have that eagerness. If we've gone through the thoughtfulness, if we've gone through knowing our audience, if we've gone through knowing uh, Him as Father, if we've gone through all of these things and we've settled in our hearts, perhaps this is what God wants. Perhaps these are the things that God may desire at this time. When we bring these requests, it should be done in eagerness, but in humility and knowing that it's ultimately up to Him. We don't bring an ultimatum to God. We bring our requests to God, hoping, hoping that what we want is aligned with what He wants. Humility and eagerness. Fifth point, she shows that we should ask for what we want before God. And this immediately triggers people. What? What did you say? What, did you just say that we should ask for what we want before God? Yes, I just did. 
That's exactly what I said, and I'll show you why. Some of us are afraid to ask what we truly want to God because we feel it is selfish or rude to do so. Now, if your prayers are selfish, and if your prayers are rude, and if your prayers are wrong, have the wrong intentions and are not aligned with God's will, and all of these things, guess what the answer to that prayer is? No! That's the answer to your prayer. God, give me this. No, that's selfish. Here's what Tim Keller once wrote. And I know Tim Keller is a little bit controversial these days, but let me just draw from him, right? One of his books, he writes this. He says, God doesn't give us everything we want because he knows when we give us what we want, we make an idol out of it. <laughs> right? Why would he want that for you? The clarity in this that we need is that God wants us to present our requests. It's the presentation of our requests that he wants. Right? As Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, but we should be mindful that those requests are not granted all the time. That's not what we're guaranteeing here. Just because you present it doesn't mean you get it. We're just saying present it. Nor are they granted in the ways that you want all the time. Sometimes it's granted in even better ways. Right? Remember David when we studied him in 2 Samuel? And he came before God and he's like so scared about the throne. Right? He's just terrified. And he's just like, oh shoot, I really messed up with Bathsheba. Now I got this like kid named Solomon and all these things. And my real son, he hates me and he wants to kill me and blah, 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 blah. And he's, it's it torment. It's just torture and all these, all these terrible things are happening. And I'm sure in the, in the deepest part of his, heart, of his heart, his prayer was, God, can you just take care of this? Like, I don't know how. And I don't know what the solution is, but I just, I just need you to help me right now. Do you think he could have imagined the response that God gave him? I will keep the throne in your household. And through his line comes the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years later. That is an unimaginable response. Sometimes we want something, we're so confined, confined to thinking that the way that I want this resolved is the way God should resolve it. We need to be cautious in our thinking when we think, when we think like that. Here's an example I want to give to you. I think of those times when I enter a store, and I hate shopping. When you enter a store, for example, and particularly I'm going to use the example of a clothing store, okay? Because that's one of the things I hate shopping for. I know very little or next to nothing about quality of clothing, durability of clothing, or even the value of clothing, or what material is better than another material, what's more expensive, what's more difficult to make, blah, blah, blah. I don't know any of that stuff. I just like what I like. I see it, and I'm like, okay, that looks nice. I just buy it, and I try to get out as fast as possible. And I, whatever is reasonable and affordable, that's what I go for. But when I enter these stores, I must look as clueless as I know that I am, because someone always never fails to approach me and says, you look like you need some help. How can I help you today? And I'm a very shy person. And so 90% of the time, I'll just say, no, no, I know exactly what I want. I'm good for today. Thank you. Right? But those odd times when I truly desperately need help, and I know the fastest way out of here is this person helping me figure this out. So those odd times when I tell them exactly what I'm looking for and what I need to get, Here's what usually ends happening, or ends up happening. I get very clear guidance. I get a small lesson on what I'm looking for and what I'm hoping to get, and then I get it. And I get a better recommendation than what I initially thought I was gonna get. I walk out a better and more satisfied customer. I think of those times like, and, like these, and I wonder, 
whether our requests are to be presented to God so that He can correct us. Sometimes we think of prayer as simply like input-output. Input prayer, output, I get what I want. Right? Put coin in the machine and a chocolate bar pops out. That's kind of how we treat prayer sometimes. But maybe, just maybe, it's more like when that welder or when that glass, you know those people that like make things out of glass, they put it in the fire and they refine it and it comes out better than before, but it looks like crap when it's in there. Right? You know what, you know what one of my favorite like things to binge watch on YouTube is? Is uh, those people who take like random metal objects and make like sick things out of it. So there's this one guy, he has like millions of subscribers, but literally what he does, he takes like bolts, like rusted bolts, and then he just like melts it and like cleans it, and then he makes like a samurai sword out of it. And it's like, it's amazing. <laughs> it's like, and he walks you through the whole process. And I'm just like, this is crazy. That's so cool. That's kind of maybe like what prayer is like. If you think about Moses, I, I use examples all the time. Moses, at the burning bush, what does he say in Exodus 2 and 3? No, I don't want to go. Essentially, that's what he says, right? Send someone else. I don't want to help these people. I don't want to go and help the Israelites. I'm fine where I am, right? And God says, no, I'm going to send you. He ends up going. What happens 30 chapters later in Exodus 32? As, as Israel is just sinning grievously before God. They've created this idol. They've created this golden calf. And God sees and he's angered. He's furious. He's gave the Ten Commandments. The first four don't make idols, right? And basically, he comes down and he says, you know what, Moses? Maybe you're right. These people aren't worth saving. So let me wipe them out. I'm going to start a new whole nation under you. And it's just you and me now, bud. And what does Moses say at that moment? Burning bush, Moses. You know what he would have said? Wipe them out, right? I'm, I'm good with none of these folks. But he stands there that day in Exodus 32 and he petitions on behalf of Israel and says, Won't the nation say, that God, you brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them in the, in the wilderness? For your glory's sake, let's salvage them. Let's help them be refined. You know what it tells me? Prayer, the prayer, of, uh, the prayer that most prayers that day, prays that day. A lot of people look to that and they go, see, this is how prayer changes God's will. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's how God's will changes people who pray. That's what you need to see. So bring your request to God. Don't be ashamed to do so. God loves us. He wants us to bring every burden and concern we have to Him in prayer. Billy Graham once wrote this. Even those that turn out later to be selfish or misguided. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Philippians 4, 6. Does this mean He'll answer all our prayers no matter what they are? No, of course not. God knows what is best for us, and He knows that many of the things we ask for would actually hurt us or even turn us away from Him. If all we're interested in is ourselves and all we're asking for is something that we selfishly desire, we shouldn't be surprised if God says no. And we should be grateful He does because He loves us enough to keep us from hurting ourselves. Billy Graham. The late Billy Graham. Next point. She mingled 
gratitude with her petition. She mingled gratitude with her petition. Aksa was grateful of her father's generosity and intentionally included her gratitude in her request for spring water. Water's this fresh water that she needed to grow stuff, right? She wanted her father to know that his generosity in giving the field was acknowledged and that her petition, her second petition, was not coming from a place of greed or selfishness. She was grateful for her for the previous gift that her father had gifted. I am reminded of the healing of the 10 lepers in G by Jesus in Luke 17. Only one of the 10, a foreigner at that, returns to Jesus to give thanks and praise to God for his healing. Jesus asks where the other nine are, but they are nowhere to be found. Sometimes in our exclamation of God's blessings, we miss out on the true opportunity to give thanks and praise to him. We must always remember that our petitions must stem from a heart gratitude. Again, Philippians 4, 6, what does Paul preface the present your request to God with? By prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Right? Final point. She used past blessing as a reason to ask for more. Along similar lines as the previous point, we need to take note that Aksa made two requests here. One for a field and one for springs of water. She made the second request in light of the first. As mentioned before, the land she inherited would need water in order to take care of it and blossom it and so that it can produce food and provide a good living for living space for herself and her fellow settlers. This was a wise observation on her end and it was the basis for the second request. Instead of just mindlessly asking for more, more, more from God, just based on our emotional desires, let us look at the blessings and answers he has given Follow the pattern, follow what is right, and then present requests that are thoughtful and helpful for the glory of God's kingdom. Right? Now, why would this be for the glory of God's kingdom? Why would this be a good thing that Aksa is able to take care of this land? Well, what, it, what is the whole point of the conquering of Canaan? So that Israel would settle in the promised land. And that the nations would know there is this God. And there are these people who are of him. And he provides. Right? Instead of just mindlessly asking, why don't you just take a moment to think about it? Think about when we're children. We have lots of wants and desires, right? When we're like little kids. We want food. We want toy. We want this toy. We want that toy. We want to eat this. We don't want to eat that. We want these things all the time. We want what that kid has. Just one after another. Just desire after desire. We want what others have when we have no sense of how these things are actually attained and what they cost and if they're even good for us. But as we mature and grow older, or at least some of us, our desire for things does not dissipate. It doesn't dissipate, right? You've grown up. You're an adult. Have your wants and desires completely diminished as you've matured into your adulthood? No. In fact, a lot of those things have increased. But our ability to attain these things have also increased. You make money now. You're able to attain these things. You're able to get a card or a credit card and buy things and blah, 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 right? So we still want things and we have certain means of attaining them as an adult. But here's what does change in maturity. Even though we want more and more, we begin to understand what things we should and should not have, right? I'm talking about mature people here. If this is not you, then maybe this is a measurement of your maturity. We begin to understand our desires. And, we, and these desires, as we grow more and more into adulthood, as we become, for example, parents, caretakers of other living people, as we become caretakers of our parents, who in turn took care of us as they grow into their senior age, 
You know what happens? Your desires become less and less centered, or should anyways, on yourself. Your desires become more and more centered on those you love, or at least it should. The sad reality is that not everyone matures to this point or even at the same rate. So we're all sort of at different stages of this growth process. But the end result should be in a normative life, right? Exactly that. That's maturity, isn't it? Less and less about self, more and more about others. And we define maturity in so many ways, right? And we talk about immaturity in church and maturity on this, maturity on that, immaturity. Blah, blah, blah. If I had to just define maturity in one way, I would define it that way. Person who begins to think more about others. It's not like goofiness or behavior or like joking and like all this. Like, that's not immaturity and maturity. That's just character. Right? Maturity and immaturity to me is defined by the reduction of selfishness. And the increase of selflessness. When we look in conclusion at Aksa and her petition, we can draw a lot of healthy insight for our own prayer life. We can look to her attitude, her understanding, her wisdom, her execution as all exemplary for us to follow in our prayers to our Heavenly Father. But what follows this brief narrative in Judges is a series of successful and semi successful and in fact failed conquests by the Israelites. And they stand in like really strong contrast to Aksa, right? So listen, listen carefully. This is the conclusion. Look at Judah in the following verses. Judah had a series of highly successful conquests. We, we discussed them last week, right? In Canaan territory. But here, they failed to take the valley, even after seeing the provision of God over and over again. They failed to trust in him to, ch uh, to challenge what is recorded here as iron chariots. One commentator writes, Hmm, he literally wrote this. Hmm, strange, exclamation. Were the iron chariots too strong for omnipotence? Psalm 20, verse 7 comes to mind here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Spurgeon writes, If they had believed in God and gone forth in his name, the horses would soon have fled, as indeed they did when God gave his people faith. We must have faith in life. That when God answers and when God promises, it is done Totally. Right? Not in fraction. Not semi. Totally. Our faith must reflect the God we place it in. But many times our prayers are wimpy and faithless. They leave room for fear of iron chariots. Just be aware of that. That's a lesson from Judah. What about Benjamin? The Benjamites were walking into a territory in a battle that had already been won. It's been promised. They've been told. Go in, drive them out. But their failure to obey God in driving out the inhabitants, the Jebusites, left them having to deal with the constant struggle with this foreign neighbor. They walk into land of promise and victory, but dwell with them as if they were defeated. Our lives as believers are marked with promise and victory by the cross of Jesus Christ. We are to live as more than conquerors, as Romans teaches us, and yet we live defeated, or as if we were defeated. We live lifeless and faithless in constant struggle with cohabitants of this world. Why? Because we fail to obey God in driving out the things God asks us to drive out. The wickedness of our hearts, the sins that torment us, the fears that consume us. Brother and sister, remember this, that the Lord who is with you and us has already won the battle and the war.
Live in victory, not in defeat. Final point, Joseph. In contrast to the house of Judah and Benjamin, look what we see here with the house of Joseph. They applied the same military tactic as Joshua did in Jericho, finding a man who gave them information, promising safety for him, to help them conquer Bethel. And they do so all while sparing this man and his family. But the author is keen to note here that Joseph is not the victor or the cause of victory. Rather, that uh, rather that their strategy is not, sorry, it's not their strategy, right, where the victory lies, but in, in this statement, the Lord was with them. It makes clear note of this. The Lord was with them because they trusted in him, they followed him in faith. The recipe for success is very clear in the book of Judges and in the book of Joshua and in all the previous other uh, Canaanite territorial books, right? We easily forget battles won. Right? We easily forget battles won. The recipe for success for the Israelites in their taking of Canaan should be plain and simple for all of Israel by now. But the human heart is truly fickle. As I mentioned earlier, we forget very quickly the battles that God wins for us. Blessings that He gives us. The hand that feeds us. We are ever so quick to resort to our default state. Faithless and fearful. May we, brothers and sisters, in light of this, be men and women of faithfulness and fearlessness as we trust in the Lord who is with us.